Did you know that on February 12th, 2020, BP CEO Bernard Looney announced that the company will be net zero carbon emissions by 2050? To get there will require a massive rethink of the entire company, its products, and its business model. This is the Levers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gio. Today's guest is Benjamin Cott, the CEO of LightSource BP Labs, a subsidiary of BP that manufactures and sells home energy management solutions. It is people like Ben who BP relies on to meet its climate goals. We caught up in October 2020 and discussed what it was like inside BP when CEO Bernard Looney made his announcement, and how to flex frameworks and pivot when necessary. So let's listen to how Ben is being an entrepreneur within a major corporation. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Jimmy. It's uh, great to be here. So I wanted to start by asking a little bit about your background. You've been an entrepreneur now for many years, and being an entrepreneur can be daunting. In the U.S., one of our great baseball stars, Babe Ruth, once said that you should never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. So what kept you engaged in the entrepreneurship game for so long? <laughs> That's a good one. Thanks, thanks, Jimmy. I should have uh, should have known it when I started. So for me, what's interesting is uh, you, you read a lot about entrepreneurs and how they started and how they sold lemon juice in their backyard when they were 12 years old or 13 years old or something, and how they produced great entrepreneurs. For me, that was never the case. Uh, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never sold lemon juice when I was 12 years old. I preferred cycling around the neighborhood. Even when I went to my business school, which is back in 2003, I did an entrepreneurship class, but it didn't motivate me to become an entrepreneur straight after. I just continued with the traditional path, consultancy, Google, corporate, and so on. The trigger for me was really after I had been at Google for five years in the environmental space, working on programs from in-house energy efficiency for offices, waste management, water management, all the way through to climate campaigns around COP15, the climate change summit of UNFCCC and ending with investing in renewable energy, I felt the need to sort of go out and really build a platform that would be able to scale energy efficiency to mass market uh, in the built environment, which is incidentally when you and I first met many years ago. The driver for me was not to be an entrepreneur and, and launch a startup. This is back in 2010, 2011, when doing a startup wasn't a big thing here in Europe, at least. Of course, in the States, it happened for much longer. My driver was really all mission-based. I was obsessed by this idea, uh, by this opportunity. First of all, challenge an opportunity of climate change and opportunity to help change the world. And then I realized that in order to do it in the way that I felt could scale, I had to go out there myself and do it. And that was really the beginning of me becoming an entrepreneur. And here we are 10 years later, and I'm now part of a startup, which is part of a renewable energy company, which is part of a large oil and gas major and still feeling like an entrepreneur, just figuring things out most of the time. Yeah. And some people call it entrepreneurship when you're able to pull those resources together, yet you're part of a large company. So tell me a bit about LightSource BP Labs of where you are and how that fits into the rest of BP. Yeah, of course. So Lysos VP Labs is a 30-people outfit with offices in three countries in Europe, and we have sales markets in Australia, Spain, and the UK. We work on a HEMS-based solution. So HEMS is a home energy 
management system because the world of energy needed a new acronym, obviously. What we do is, is sort of the smartest system of home energy management, if you want. It's a micro PC-based architecture that brings together all the equipment you have in your home, energy consuming, energy generating appliances, and uh, makes it work in a way that you can save energy, save carbon, save costs, and increase the home, the comfort at home. That is Lysos Labs, and the product, the HEMS, is called Tribe, the product line. Lysos Labs is part of Lysos BP, which is a 500 people output, which is a renewable energy developer and operator focused exclusively on solar PV. Lysos BP have been going for 11 years. And as you know, they've been acquired or they've started this joint venture with BP 50%, 43% to 50% of the shares transferred to BP a couple of years ago. And then, of course, Lysos BP, part of BP, which is interesting in its own right, when they started, I think the world was a different place, much more traditional than it is today. And then just after I joined Lightsus, actually, or Lightsus Labs rather, in January, in February, Bernard Looney made his announcement. He became CEO and, and then the world changed uh, in, in ways nobody could anticipate in the, in the following few months. So we've just come out of that on a high note in terms of renewable energy, uh, new green deal and so on. And certainly very interesting time for me as an entrepreneur to be alive and to work in a company like Labs, which is part of Lysos BP, which is part of BP. What is your framework for decision-making then, since you have so many different actors and stakeholders throughout the entire organization? Mm. That's a really interesting question, Jimmy. It's given me quite a bit of food for thought. <laughs> I have normally um, quick answers to all sorts of questions, but that one I had to actually think about a little bit. And I'm not sure I've got the perfect answer because frameworks, as you know, are quite flexible changing, you have to adapt them, you have to go with the time and make sure you don't miss anything. But I think at the same time, you have to have a mission and a purpose. And for me, that's very important. It's very important where we are now. It's important for the companies I referenced earlier, but it's also the thing, if you go back to what I said at the beginning, that's sort of driven me for the last couple of decades around trying to have an impact on this. So for me, the sort of key framework to decision-making is really centered around impact. And I say impact in a generic way and it has lots of ramifications of course so i think the first sort of impact that we're thinking about here and we're considering is impact in environmental terms of course the first metric you're looking at is co2 kilograms tons megatons of co2 how can we help abate reduce co2 with the things that we're working on the technologies the services and so on which we'll talk about later maybe that's one thing and of course the extension of that is the impact on the environment so you want to improve the state of the environment, you want to reduce negative environmental impact. That's the first sort of carnation of, of impact. The second part really is economical value. I talked a lot about this previously, but the best technology, the best ideas, the best policy is worth nothing if it doesn't come with a business model at some level and, and you can't scale it. You can only scale it if you have technology, product, service in combination with the business model, then it would really really be able to have a global impact. And so we need to generate economical value at every level. And from that, I mean, from the homeowner who can benefit from, say, a system like ours to the company we're part of, to the mother company and to society more broadly. And that brings me to the third point, which is maybe a little bit less sort of sharply defined as than, say, megatons of carbon or, or pounds and, and dollars of economical impact. But that's really the personal slash societal impact. I can't really put uh, put quantifiable metrics on this just yet. But I do know that at the end of the day, what we all want 
is is a positive impact on the people that we're working with, on the people that are our customers. And not just that, but also on the people in our organizations. For instance, if you're building a startup, you know everything is about purpose, mission, having people who are motivated and believe in, in the thing that you're working on. That's that's really a big, big part of the thing. And that's really part of the third metric. And sometimes part of that is intuitive. If you go home every night and you feel excited, you know that you've achieved that metric, but yet it's really hard to put Absolutely. a number behind it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's an interesting thing to what you just said is that I used it before and we're not talking about COVID so much now in lockdown, but of course it's sort of on, on the tip of the tongue of everybody when you start the conversation these days, but it's amazing and fantastic to work, be able to work for a company like Lightsource BP in this context. And for me personally, for a company like BP, who is in the biggest change in its 111 year old history and really in world that's changing and at the pace in a way that we've not seen before, just because your employer or the company that employs you has purpose and is an amazing company doesn't mean you personally have purpose in what you do every day, right? It's maybe easier, even easier for me as a CEO to say, that of course, I'm leading that, so I've by extension have that purpose, but you still have to make a big effort, a concerted effort, and make sure that each one of your employees has a purpose as well, feels that purpose is part of the story, but also that a personal contribution is appreciated, valued, and, and that they recognize it themselves. That's the role of the leader, isn't it? To be able to connect those purposes <laughs> to the corp, uh, to the company or to the work. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier frameworks are flexible, and I wanted to dive into that. You know, you can come up with all these metrics and all these processes and frameworks of doing business. When and how do you flex them when they don't no longer serve your purpose? Well, that's the uh, that's a billion dollar question, isn't it? So the the unicorn question. Um, you always talk about two aspects to this really. One is sort of sticking sticking to your guns, I think. That's how you say it, especially in the valley and seeing things through, not being fickle, changing idea, changing plans every day, throwing things over and starting again. Absolutely, that's important. As you know, as we all know, in, in the series of this podcast, energy, B2B industry, buildings, built environment, one of the slowest moving sectors, evolution, one of the slowest evolutions you can imagine, right? So things take... Buildings are built to last for, for, for decades, you know. 80% of the stock that's around today is still going to be here in 40, 50 years when, when we need to have zero carbon everywhere for the world, right? So how, how do you do this? And the organizations behind them are some of the biggest, most static in some ways organizations. But at the same time, you do have to need that focus and need to be able to see this, this through, have patience because things take a while. You're not just building something and six months later, you have a massive accident. At the same time, as you just hinted, you need to be able to be flexible to see where an evolution is happening, where maybe you've sort of chased the wrong tail gun after the wrong thing and maybe tried a business model or worked on a business model that's not working. Maybe your product offering has to be updated. Maybe your channel has to be has to be changed. Maybe your sort of purpose and, and sort of messaging has to be updated. Any of these things and more. Maybe you're you're in the wrong market geographical. Maybe you have the wrong pricing model and so on. That's for me is the hardest thing, to be honest, to maintain that sort of focus, laser focus, and to have the patience and have the grit and the stamina to see things through, which is a sort of maybe basic instinct of mine, on the other hand, to maintain a flexibility and see how you update things, how you morph things, how you evolve things, just possibly pivot at some point. You probably don't want to do too many pivots in, in a certain lifetime or in over a few years, but you have to be able to, to react. And you know what? For me, it's actually the notion of the pivot is a really interesting one. 
I think it's probably a bit a bit overrated. You see a lot of like, big success stories where people pivoted and then Flickr came out of it or Slack came out of a, a massive multiplayer game. That was certainly a total pivot. Having said that, I think in a lot of cases, it's just adapting your strategy in the right parts, in the right time, in the right way. It's an ongoing basis almost every day. You could say you've pivoted your career several times, starting off in a consulting company at Booz Allen, going to Google, like you said, starting your own company or going at BP. How have you found your approach to work changing in each one of those types of companies that you've worked in? Oh, wow, that's really interesting. When I started out my career after studying aerospace engineering in Munich, which was at the time for me a pretty broad-based degree already. It, it unified a lot of the, the things I was passionate about, I was interested about. I would have liked to study languages, psychology, many other things as well. So it didn't have to be necessarily only technology, but that's where I ended up. Then after that, I broadened my horizon again, went into management consulting, which is very broad sort of school. If you want, you work on many different projects in different industries with different clients, which was a fascinating time for me and fascinating experience. I did that for five years. Uh, including the MBA, um, again, broadening the, the horizon. And what I settled on at the time um, after those five years, this is now mid-2000s, was the media technology industry, communications media technology, if, if you want, which took me to Google, where I worked the first year in the strategy group on some of the bigger organizational projects, strategic topics, advertising, and so on. And then finally, in 2008, I found my true purpose, back to some of the passions and the things I got excited when I was a teen or uh, at the beginning of my studies where I really wanted to do something with the environment and more precisely environmental technologies, or clean technologies, even if we didn't call it that. So at Google in 2008, I, I started a role which was called Green Business Operations Manager, and that, that really brought it all home for me. For the next four years, and I would be living the dream, doing this in that sort of company in that environment, 2008 was, was, it was a great time to be alive in a clean tech context. Did many different projects from environmental efficiency technologies across our own operations, investing in renewable energy and working on the Copenhagen Climate Summit COP15 in 2009. So certainly I had then found my industry and I knew I didn't want to leave that anymore. And I knew I wanted to work in the environmental technology sector. Of course, after five years at Google, you get an idea for the opportunity, which is what we discussed earlier, which for me was if we wanted to scale this, it had to be through technology, it had to be through software. That's where I then got the idea for starting my own company, which was initially called Energy Decan and Fabric, which is really a, a software web platform for energy data acquisition, analytics and optimization in buildings, mostly in the commercial environment. Did that for eight years, moved on December last year, at the end of last year, handed over the reins to the next organization. The, the company is doing quite well, growing nicely. But for me, it was after seven, eight years at the helm of that as a founder CEO, it was really time time to do something else, time to move on, get a new experience. And at that point, I had settled on the industry, clean technology. I had settled on the layers I wanted to work on, which was software, web platforms, technology, high tech, energy efficiency, energy technology. And now, as we discussed earlier, I had found the perfect setup for me, the perfect operating context, which is running a startup within a much bigger organization, which is part of one of the biggest organizations in the world, which is how I now imagine change can really happen and I can have an, I can have an impact. So from all those experiences, you went from super broad and trying to go as wide as you can and yeah. slowly over time, it got really specific into. Yeah. 
So a really specific and a very small organization, startup, very, very focused on, on one thing. And now it's sort of taking that into a broader context and scaling it. So almost if you look at the funnel, that's very, very broad at the beginning, going narrow and going broader again. And you know, you know this and people, a lot of the listeners of this podcast will, will sort of feel the same. We, the time is now, right? Because to sort of go broad and scale, because we really have 10 years to, to make that change happen. Yeah. 2030 is becoming that magic number for a lot yes, of initiatives. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly BP is doing their part or saying that they're doing their part with their pronouncements of moving away from fossil fuels. And so Jay Bruns, one of our podcast guests wanted to ask, how does the BP staff and internal people see its commitments mm -hmm. for moving away from fossil fuels? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really interesting question. You'll, you'll appreciate I have like an outside in point of view. One, because I'm only 50% part of BP, but also because I've only been here for nine months. And if you had told me even two years ago, I would be working for an oil and gas company, I would have said, no, that's probably not, not the future I had uh, anticipated for myself. Thank you very much. It's really interesting when I, I started in January. So I would have interviewed in September last year, exactly 12 months ago and finalized uh, contractual proceedings over the then following months. Believe it or not, but the fact that this was BP, Lights was BP, Lights was BP Labs, was a big, big uh, sort of, sort of decision-making factor for me to take the job. Exactly because of what I just said, because I had just experienced being part of a very large internet, very successful consumer web company that is doing all the right things, but my contribution at company to the greater good was becoming very limited in a good way because they had, they were doing the right things at scale. And then I had been part of a very small company that was doing all the right things. It was amazing. You, you built your own business and so on, but the contribution overall was limited because of scale taking quite a long time to sort of, sort of achieve. And now it's about combining those two. And I felt that doing that within a company like BP and BP specifically was a massive opportunity for me. And that was before Bernard Looney was even, was even nominated as the CEO. That literally happened a week after I signed the contract, which is quite interesting. It was maybe a little bit of prescience. In February, when I heard Bernard's announcements, I was over the moon because it was just so exciting and so amazing, all the things he was saying, 2015 at zero, how we we're going to get that BP will change completely, essentially decarbonize, get out of oil and gas over that sort of time frame and become a renewable energy integrated energy company and, and service provider. So for me, it was absolutely the confirmation that I had come to the right place and that this was the place I wanted to be and I wanted to make a contribution to over the next three, five, 10 years and beyond possibly. And it's the right place, right time, right opportunity. How do people in BP see this? Look, I'm obviously sort of focused on the part of BP that is working on net zero, alternative energy, innovation, engineering, convenience and products, I have a lot of regions and cities. These are all my sort of daily counterpart people I'm talking to and we're working on these strategies together. How can we support them as labs, lights as labs with digital technologies and so on? achieving their objectives. And everyone there, of course, is completely excited about this, is really gung-ho and highly, highly motivated to work on that. And I think that's the visibility I have. I don't see that much beyond it. Of course, for, for some parts of the of the companies, it's going to mean a big, big change. Some parts of the companies are going to be different, not going to be in the future. But from what I see, at least the conversations I'm having, everybody not just understands it, but really fully endorses it. And thinks and knows this is the right thing and wants to have a contribution to that. And you're certainly leading one of the organizations of the BP umbrella that will have to grow in order to reach that net zero mm. organization. That must be a really exciting opportunity for you. 
Absolutely. If you if you look at it right earlier today, the write up from BP Week uh, last week, which happened last week, which is which is very interesting to see all the things come to fruition and be announced publicly in the context of how to get to net zero in just the next 10 years. The focus is very much on 2030 uh, last after the presentations last week, and it has to be digital uh, is, is really one of the four key pillars of achieving that. And that for me is a great confirmation, but also it's, it's again, it's a big sort of call to action for us to really see how we can contribute to that and how we can make it happen. It's also a confirmation of what I set out to do, if you want, back in 2010, 2011, when I, when I left Google thinking, we've done a lot of great things, but to really scale this to world level, we need digital technologies to have as a platform to build these services on. So let's talk about this home management solution, home energy management solution. Mm -hmm. There are so many devices now that are infiltrating our homes. How do you pull them all mm -hmm. together? And what's the unit metrics to be able to measure your success of that? The thing is, I, I commented, I think, on, on another post earlier where people wrote about the smart home 2020, and there was a presentation they did 10 years ago, and it looks pretty much exactly like the things we have these years. So quite well imagined in that sense, only that, that we didn't imagine that we Maybe maybe we're a little bit behind. We're going to be a little bit behind the curve in that 10 years ago because we're really still at the beginnings of that. And believe it or not, my first project in management consulting back in 2000, 20 years ago, was the smart home, the smart home project for Telecom Italia, which had nothing to do with energy at the point, of course, but it was all about connectivity, services, automation, you know, integrated TV, media content, telecommunication, and so on. That was 20 years ago. And I dare say two decades later, and we're just about getting started, even just in the connected home without energy, right? So yes, for the last few years, we've had smart light bulbs, smart thermostats, smart doorbells, alarm systems are increasingly getting integrated and so on. So that's happening probably much more slowly than anybody thought even just five years ago, but it is happening and it will become pervasive over the next five to 10 years. The part where we come in is on the energy side. You have smart thermostats that are driving your boiler or your AC, but doesn't necessarily talk to the solar panels, to the inverter. It, it, it doesn't charge the battery. It, it can't interpret grid signals. It doesn't do time of use. It doesn't know what time of use is and so on. It's not integrated with appliances, right? And that's exactly the sort of missing block I find or the missing piece in the puzzle of, of the true smart home, which encompasses all the services I mentioned before, security, safety, convenience, but also energy, energy management and participating in, in the sort of trading opportunities. So that's, that's where where Tribe, our home energy management product sits. And you mentioned integrations. That's exactly one of the USPs, one of the sort of key success criteria we have. And one of the USPs we have is that we support wide, wide number of, of integrations with different inverter types, with different battery types, different EV chargers, home communication protocols, Zigbee, Bluetooth, what have you, Modbus, even looking into the CNI, commercial and industrial space, BACnet and so on, potentially in, in the time to come. And that's really one of the hallmarks of having a successful technology there. But of course, that's just at the technology level, at the equipment level. Then at level above, you have to provide the end user interface to that. What is in it for the homeowner in terms of comfort, in terms of reducing your energy cost, energy consumption cost and carbon, as I mentioned before, but also potentially participating in peer-to-peer -peer trading. You know, you have a lot of sun, you, you store it in your battery, your battery is full. You don't have a consumption device. Now, what are you going to do with it? You can trade it with a neighbor who's, who, who can benefit from it and so on or somewhere else in the market. And then you have to look at the stack above that, which is not just the homeowner, but then also the operator, the, the, the utility company potentially. 
And on top of that, have to look at service providers who can then deliver services on top of that, some of which we already understand. We mentioned VPP, virtual power plant, trading, balancing mechanisms, some of which we haven't even identified yet, which is uh, something that I'm looking forward to exploring further in the years to come. So it's really, when you look at home energy management, it's easy to look at it as a box, yet another box, another gateway that goes into your home. That's important. You have to get it right. It has to be powerful, has to have a lot of integrations and so on. But really, it, it only comes into its own if you consider the whole stack that sits on top of it and the value that can be generated for the different participants at each of those levels and for the industry as a whole. And each one of those different stacks in the value chain is going to have a completely different integration problem. The data sets are going to be different and the standards are going to be different. How do you manage all those different standards and all those different data points to bring them together? Absolutely. So coming from the commercial space, especially, right, where it's, it's not just Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, but you have 50 different protocols, versions and so on. Even if you have, say, just one protocol like Modbus, just looking at the registers and where things should be and where they are in the interpretation of them and connectivity is different every time. So no two buildings are alike, no, no two gateways are alike, no two BMSs communicate in the same way. So standards is a big challenge, has been a big issue in the industry. There seems to be a new one every year, one to bind them all, and then you just end up with more standards at the end of the day. A key thing is I think we will solve this problem. Um, in the next few years, I think we see increasing standardization, people working together, and we will convene on a subset of those standards and it will be will be increasingly internationalized and industrialized. I don't think that's a problem for us going forward. That's something we can solve at the technology layer. The challenge for me going forward is twofold and this challenge to scale is on the one hand is the value, the value proposition. How can we make sure that we, we create value at those different levels, which I mentioned before? And secondly is how do we communicate that value? Because that's still a big problem. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I need the hems. No one really knows how to pull all these dots together and what's what's in it for them and for others. And as a technology-led domain or a sort of business or industry, we, we often have the problem that we're not able to communicate things in simple terms to the end customer, the different end customers. And that's where we have to put a lot more work. And so when we start talking about home customer value, the homeowner's value, are you selling energy management mm. or are you selling other value propositions and energy management happens to be a co-benefit that comes along with it? Coming from the commercial sector, having worked there for many years, I think you can become a little bit cynical about the industry because on the one hand, everyone in the industry talks about the importance of energy management, energy savings, and so on. And I mean, I mean, literally everyone. And at the same time, if you look at the profession itself, there are very few real energy managers in buildings across large portfolios across many of the clients I worked with previously. Sometimes you would think it's almost a dying breed. And so, so you can tell that there's a clearly a disconnect between what's in the brochures and so on and then the PR and what's, what's really done on the ground. Talk about turn it into cost. You have something that's obviously much more sellable, much more important to people and carbon is becoming more and more important again, which is really important. But I think for me, even so, I think we're, we're missing a trick. And I think the answer for me personally is kind of twofold. And the answer comes through integration. So on the one hand, if we manage to integrate the propositions we have in the products we're working on in the broader home, so with the panels and the inverters and so on, then what we can really do at the end of the day is to increase your comfort at home. Yes, generate savings, but also increase automation at home and the things you can do in your home and through your home. And that's a really important thing for me. There's many benefits that we haven't even accessed yet and we haven't even identified yet. 
also thinking of resilience, independence, and so on, right? Safety, security, and all that. So that, that all plays into that. And secondly, <laughs> the other part of this is that we have almost through integration, not only do we become sort of integrated in a way that we can all make it work and access these other benefits, but we also don't have to communicate the individual building blocks of this anymore. We don't have to sell a HEMS to somebody who's now got a solar panel and a battery. What we sell is the overall proposition, it's the integrated system, it's the kit. So people say, just make my home as efficient, as cost efficient, as automated, as comfortable as possible. Thank you very much. And we're a key enabler for that. And that's where I think we have to get to as an industry. Just make it work, automate, uh, use data science and machine learning and so on and so forth to really get the most out of the building, any building, any living environment. When you're selling solar panels, you're just selling electrons. And that was okay 15, 20 years ago. And then the last five years or so, people have been selling solar panels with batteries where they now sell energy systems. But even that is still a little abstract for the customer. And so when you add the home energy manager to those other two components, the solar panel, the battery, and the home energy manager, now you're selling a solution. Now you can sell comfort. You can sell something that the person can relate to. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of this rests on big data. All of this rests on the telecommunications and being able to pull those together and the analysis of this information. But yet one of the challenges with data is that it runs the risk of being specific and wrong. So how do you go and manage that <laughs> uncertainty within your data? That's quite interesting when you say specific. <laughs> so the biggest challenge in, in data is often that it's, you know, there's, there's this joke about data science, how what you actually want to do is have is do a little bit of, of mapping and sort of cleaning and then donate 90% of data science or just amazing algorithms and, and learning and neural networks and whatnot, your random forest and all these other fancy things. And what you're actually doing is 80 or 90% data cleansing and, and mapping and correcting and dealing with sort of quality issues. And then you do a little bit of modeling and so on. And probably not not even that much because you don't often you don't have very good data at least that's the case in commercial building management and properties where portfolios worth tens of billions of dollars in assets and management are often run in a single spreadsheet with a few hundred rows when it comes to energy data management for those portfolios if you even have the energy data for a lot of those buildings and the false good and you know where the buildings are and how big they are which are some of the basic basic problems that we've been facing the last 20 years and some buildings are different, of course, and they have very good data and you can do some fancy things with them. But where we are now, and if you think, think about the scenario where we deploy the home energy management system into hundreds of thousands of homes, we will end up having very good data that's very specific, that has you know very granular data, high resolution, down to the device level, to the equipment level, with geographical information, weather, pricing, forecast, and so on. So that's incredibly powerful. That kind of data allows you to do a lot of things with the sort of customer in mind, the end user in mind to really improve to a level that they didn't even think possible, their comfort and savings and so on. And not just at the individual customer level, but also then at the grid level, the micro grid level, the larger grid level, distribution grid network, where you can then do trading, balancing, connect batteries and so on, storage to virtual power plant and so on. All the things that, that we've been hearing about for many years, we can now finally make it happen. And that's incredibly powerful. Of course, with all that, and that's the question I typically get having worked for Google also comes to the issue of privacy, data protection, and so on. And I think that has to be, you almost have to start with, with a vision of how you're going to protect that data. When the data becomes very good, 
as opposed to what's often the case in commercial buildings and very granular. You have to design your, your frameworks around and say, how do you from day one protect it so that you have a data set that on the one hand very granular, very powerful, on the other hand doesn't have backdoors for people to sort of enter the data and do things with them that, that you wouldn't want them to do. And I think people, when they think of data security, data privacy, they think of it from a human actor point of view, but it could just be a broken sensor that's giving bad data and feeding bad data into the system. And those also need to be controlled for. And I think people overlook that as part of data security as part of the equation. Absolutely. And then, then the question becomes, you know, what's your decision logic, your sort of business logic? Do you, how much value do you attribute to a single sensor and how quickly do you react to that versus comparing that sensor to another thousand sensors you have on on temperature in an average home, you know, or humidity or or other things uh, or CO2. And to what extent can you isolate that sensor and say, well, you know, it shows 1500 ppm of CO2. That's a really bad level. I have to not open the windows for many days. That's really weird. And then you can cross-reference that with some other data you have in the system and probably quite quickly identify when you have enough data and enough sort of uh, reference points. That's probably a sort of sensor that's, that's gone havoc. Absolutely, when the data set is much smaller, that's a trickier thing to do. You can also identify, you know, when people on the properties are not on the properties, and that's exactly the things I mentioned earlier. With a lot of data comes power, and you have to be able to manage it properly and in the right frameworks. And I think as an industry, I say this from the perspective of an industry, as we get more data than we were ever used to, we have to really think about it and how can we keep that in check and keep that robust and secure for everyone so we can all benefit from that. Where do you turn to for new information? It's an interesting question. I think I probably not so different in in that I multiple sort of streams and feeds of information. You have your list of newsletters. I have my list of newsletters I'm subscribed to. I have uh, the number of podcasts I'm listening to. Feeds on LinkedIn, for instance, is very powerful for me because I'm connected to quite a few people and there tends to be a lot of information on there actually even breaking news in many cases, and then interesting discussions coming from that. And then also just personal discussions, people like yourself and many others. I think the networking is really useful for that. The tricky thing is, as we're so often, as we've heard, is to make sense of all this information and filter it and make sure you don't miss anything, but you don't get information overload. I haven't really figured that one out properly just yet, but I think where you have a forum where you have information, that comes from sort of qualified sources and is curated in a way, but then you also have the ability to have discussion around this information, for instance, commentary underneath, or you're discussing a press release or something with friends that you trust and people from the industry. That's really where you have information plus qualification, which then really turns into quality insights for me. And that's something we're trying to create in different ways. As you reflect back on your career, what brings you optimism about climate action? Since COP15, 2009, so the last decade really, 2010, 2020, I think was really tough for the climate, right? We had a change in governments almost globally, which were increasingly less concerned or seemingly many large governments, certain jurisdictions less concerned about the climate, less concerned about, you know, meeting certain climate targets, being part of certain international consortia and so on. In the industry, there was a strong cynicism, sense of cynicism the last 10 years, exactly my sort of time after I left Google and before I joined BP, is this even going to work? Does, do people even care about it? You know, the regulation is always behind, never enough. The technology was there, the business models were sort of fledgling, were starting to be there, but nobody seemed to have an appetite to really 
want to scale it and nobody said you actually had to do it. And I think for better or worse, with the turn of the sort of decade, has brought us to a turning point. And I do think there's a realization now across every part of society and the industry that we have 10 years, we have 10 years to fix this or else, you know, I see this at every level of every boardroom now, all the people I'm talking to from literally people on the street who are now all open to that, wanting to do that electric vehicle boom or passion for that. Seemingly everybody want to have one, they're not maybe cheap enough yet. You see how some stocks performed in the last few months and so on. And that's, this is just the beginning. I think there's no way back. Also, the last six months have really accelerated this to a point. I think it was really important. We've now all internalized that there's no way back to the world we had before. In, in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. And I think that the clock is ticking. We're still not doing anything fast enough. We still have to be 10, 100 times faster and more than, than we're planning now, or we will be on the wrong trajectory. But it gives me hope that I see this has become so pervasive across society, across industry, and it has become a positive thing as well. Not just as, oh, we have to do it because otherwise polar bears will die and a few other things. But now the climate thing, which has been a big sort of stick thing, a carrot and the stick has become something very positive, something aspirational. Who would not want to have a home powered by solar with battery storage and drive an electric vehicle and many other things, right, that, that come with it. And I think that's the other thing when I go back to the messaging we had before and the value proposition, people are really starting to understand what is the value proposition and they want to live in that greener, better, more environmentally friendly world. When you mentor early professionals, what challenges do you see them facing and how do you advise them to overcome those challenges? There's really multiple aspects of that. I think when you talk about the early professionals today, and I'm, I'm mentoring a couple of people actually from INSEAD, one of the challenges is just making ends meet. <laughs> this is a tough time. It hasn't been great already the last few years. Been, economy has been booming, but a lot of that has been due to efficiency, automation, and so on. And and a lot of companies have started cutting back, you know, workforce already before COVID, just because they have become more efficient, outsourcing, and so on. And I think now after COVID, it's become a, a whole lot harder to find a great job, a great opportunity at, at all levels. Again, at all levels of professional, professional sort of jobs, professional opportunities. The first challenge for me is just get on the ladder that I've seen people is just to get on the ladder, find a job, find any job, find a qualification, have a study and so on. Great. But then find your first job two, three years, ideally have a great logo next to it, but have something that you can then look at and say, okay, this is my stepping stone now, my foundation. I almost want to say this is, it should be easier now to do that with all the great new things happening and startups and technologies and so on. But I feel if I look back at my beginning of the career, 20, beginning of my career 20 years ago, it seems to have almost become harder, definitely now versus six months ago, but even 20 years ago in a way. I hear that a lot. The other challenge I see, and that's quite interesting, that's certainly a generational change that I perceive between the likes of us and, and people starting now. They don't want to do five years of slides and PowerPoint and business analytics and stuff just to then do the next the next five years or something and then maybe after 10 15 years you 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 discover your passion your profession then you can do you can give back and you can really work on something that you're passionate about and where purpose meets passion and opportunity they want that now you know well maybe after a year two years they don't have that patience i think that's a good thing i really think that's a good thing on the one hand, it makes it even harder for them to find the right opportunity because the choice already was limited or hard, and now it sort of gets whittled down even more. But on the other hand, I don't think we should anybody should be working in jobs where they are unhappy or just doing a job for over years and years. And 
that's probably also a thing that could, could be replaced or done by a machine, by an algorithm, even better, right? So again, as an entrepreneur, I always see an opportunity where there's a challenge, right? So the challenge is the scope is broader, the opportunities are maybe fewer, it's harder to get on the ladder, get a well-paid job, well-paid program and so on. But on the other hand, I think it's a big, big push for companies as well and for employees and entrepreneurs to be able to provide these opportunities in a world where we need purpose needs to match opportunity. And I think, again, that's going to be a defining moment for us over the next few years as the world comes out of COVID and we have to post sort of work world or office work world, how are we going to manage that and how are we going to design that in order for these sorts of things to be able to to happen. My advice is also to understand what it is that they really want to do and then to try and understand where the opportunities for that are in the industry. In a lot of cases, the opportunities won't come to them. They have to go find the opportunities, find the prospects themselves or make them happen themselves directly. And that's a big change as well to, to the world 20 years ago. That's everything I have, Ben. Any last words? No, look, it's been really interesting. So, so thanks a lot for being given this opportunity as well. I keep saying this, I'm obviously in a, in a comfortable position to have a fantastic job with a great company, starting from labs to lights and BP being great, great environment and great operating context, which, which provides some really, really quite, quite formidable challenges and opportunities in the next five to 10 years. So it maybe sounds somewhat easy for me to say that, but come through hardship as well. And I think like many other people would hopefully say, this is a great time. It's also a great time to be alive and, and it's a great time to be doing the things that you and I and, and this industry that we're working on. And we're, we're at the beginning of the decade of the final decade in the environmental revolution and of the most important decade potentially, because this is the decade where we have to make it happen and where we really can make it happen. Let's go out and make it, make it happen, make it so. Fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you. Thanks, Jimmy. It's been a massive pleasure. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Music